Good morning, saints. I want to share some thoughts this morning. Good morning, saints. Uh, I want to share some thoughts this morning on, uh, you know, uh, Bill Snell wrote an article called uh, Stone Pillared Legalist. It's on the blog, the church blog. Great article. Uh, really encourage you to take a look at that article. It's called Stone Pillared Legalist on the blog of the church's blog, graceorlando.com. And um, great article. And then it, it, it sparked a bunch of uh, comments from different people back and forth. And now I think there's 12 comments under Bill's article. I want to encourage you to read that because it's, the, the, a lot of good stuff is in there. A lot of good explanation. People asking questions about law and grace and that kind of thing. But one of the uh, brothers that wrote a question about it. He, he asked, because he, he picked up on one, one thing that we had said on there. I wrote a couple of comments on there, and Bill wrote comments, and uh, back and forth. Uh, Jeff Fitzgerald wrote a comment, great comment about Hebrews. Um, but one of the things, this other Jeff, it's two, di- different, two different Jeffs writing on this, so you know. There's Jeff Fitzgerald that goes here and teaches here sometimes, but then there's another Jeff. I'm not sure who he is, but um, he could be anywhere, but um, he is... Um, he had a question about First John one nine because we were talking about how believers um, do not need to confess their sins and name their sins on a daily basis to stay cleansed or stay righteous or stay in fellowship with God and so forth. And that was like whoa to him. We are kind of used to hearing that here, but he was like, wow. I've always thought that you know believers had to always you know confess their sins and keep up to date and keep short accounts with God and all this stuff to stay to keep the sins from piling up. In fact, one of, the, one of the guys said that on the website, you know, that kind of thinking. And so I was looking for different messages that we've given in the past to, to, so I could refer him to, you know, one that kind of focused on the First John 1, 9 thing. I couldn't really find one. The titles are, you know, sometimes you can't tell. So I'm going to do, if, if, if it's okay with you, I'm going to do so, just a brief um, thing this morning about the whole thing about First John 1, 9 and bring in the word repentance also, and talk about that for a little bit. Um, so that this will be a message you could refer other people to, maybe that are still wondering about the, the whole confession of sin issue, and how does repentance fit in with that. So it's going to be brief, but it's going to be, a, I think, enough of a nugget where you could refer someone to this message, and they could take a look at it, and maybe the light bulb will go off. Yes? Oh, good. I forgot about that. Okay. Yeah, the Slidell messages um, are on the website, on the seeinggrace.com website. I forgot about that, Bob. Excellent. And um, so we did focus on that. That was like a year ago. So that's, that's on the website, seeinggrace.com. One of those we talked about first time, one nine. But I'm, I, want, I want to do something really quick here. So it's like a, a short, concise talk about the first time, one nine controversy, uh, and then the whole issue of repentance and what repentance really is and that kind of thing, just real briefly. Hey, I want to let you guys know, Jeremy and Jody Luzier, um just moved in to Orlando. Lazier. Oh, how do you say how you pronounce it? Lazier. Lazier. Yeah. That sounds better. <laughs> My dad was a son who's got pastor for years, and he would tell people, this is what he said, so it's legal. Okay, it's legal. <laughs> he said, he said, Lazier, Lazier, now you won't forget. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's perfect. <laughs> Perfect, Lazier, and their and their their little son Rory R O R Y, Rory. Um, he's what six years old. 
Yeah, so they moved from, from Nashville, Tennessee down here. It's been a long process, but it's basically because of the gospel, because of Grace Church. And so just really excited to have them down here. I told Jeremy and Jody, we need you. We need help down here. We need people that, you know, will encourage the saints and who are excited about what God's doing down here. But if you don't remember, Jeremy shared in the church here about last winter when we were at an LSU game. And uh, he was he spoke here. They got the guy got lost. But when he got here, he only had like 15, 20 minutes to speak. And uh, I listened to the message and it's like, oh, my God, it's like so much truth in 15 minutes. It was like, bam, bam, bam. Anyway, so. <laughs> it was cool, very cool. Um, I remember Daniel texting me, or Tully was either Tully or yeah, Tully was taping, and Tully texted me in Louisiana, said this guy's a spiritual jewel or something like. That. So it was cool, awesome. Okay, well let's just jump into it real quick, and this is going to be bare bones on this First John one nine thing, but uh, I think it'll help. Lord, we just thank you right now. Just we. Never want to forget that we cannot grasp these things without the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would help us see clearly and help us articulate, not just this morning, but also every day to others, that they might see the awesomeness of your work, how you really did take away the sin of the world, that you no longer cover sin, but you took it away. Help us to see the reality of this awesome work, this awesome grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you get a chance, please take a look at that. There's a lot of good comments under that article that Bill Snell wrote. The article itself is awesome, and then there's good comments under that. Um, The first thing I want to share about this First John 1, 9 thing is um, this really goes to the heart of the truth that the Lord took away our sin and he doesn't cover our sin anymore. Under the old covenant, um, sins were covered and they were covered as they were committed. You committed a sin, you would take a sacrifice to the temple and those sins were covered. And it was done because of a law that God had instituted called the old covenant And in that Old Covenant, there were three parts to that Old Covenant. Um, Well, actually four, if you want to say there's four parts to it. There were the the law itself, the law, Ten Commandments and all the other commandments. Then then there, there was the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. Now, the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices all had to do with covering of sin. Um, The law was what was to be obeyed and kept. Um, so in, built within the Old Covenant was this provision for the covering of sin because God knew we could not keep the law. They could not keep the law. Um, and the truth is the law never was given to us. It was only given to the Jew, and it was only given to the Jew for a limited period of time. So it's really kind of, when you really think about it, this controversy of whether we're under the law or not is, is really kind of ridiculous because it's not even, it wasn't even given to us. Uh, the Gentiles never had a covenant with God in the law, under the law. Never. And if you're a Jew, it's, you're still not under that covenant because the Jews, only a, a, a limited number of Jews were under that covenant. The ones that came out of Egypt from Sinai, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they weren't under the covenant of law. There was no law. Uh, Jacob wasn't under law. 
there was no Mosaic covenant till there was a Moses. So, so from Mosaic covenant from Sinai till the cross, till Jesus died and God ripped that veil in two, that was the end of that covenant. It was added, Galatians says, temporarily, just added for a period of time. So really when you think about it, it just doesn't make any sense that we're still arguing, not us, but worldwide there's such a big argument about whether or not we are under the law or not when that law, that covenant of law, was never meant to be for anybody past the cross. And, of course, the prophets said this would happen, that God would bring a new covenant, not like the covenant, Jeremiah said, not like the covenant that he cut with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. A new covenant would come, Jeremiah said. And, of course, Hebrews picks up on that verse and says, and this is it, we're here. This is an awesome new covenant with better promises, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so this controversy of does a believer... Um, have to name his sins or confess his sins on a daily basis to stay forgiveness, to stay forgiven or cleansed, goes to the heart of the new covenant. Because the new covenant is not about, Hebrews 10 says that under the old covenant, sins were covered by the blood of bulls and goats, but, but it could never take away sin. But Jesus himself, the scripture says, became our sacrifice, one sacrifice for all sin, for all time, for all people, so that sin could be taken away. In fact, that was the one word that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was a major proclamation. This is not just, this is a whole new deal. So if a believer is in Christ, sin has been taken away. Now what does that mean? It means that your past, your present, and your future sins are no longer held against you. God was in Christ, reconciling the whole world unto himself, not counting our sins against us anymore. That's the new covenant. That's why it's good news. And that's why you can be joined to God. That's why God can be in me, and, I can, and he can be in you. We can be in him and him in us. Because sin is not counted or imputed to us anymore. Where there is no law, Paul says, there is no transgression. And where there is no law, sin is not imputed. This is the great mystery of death and resurrection where God actually brings you and I through judgment, through the cross, and raises us from the dead. We were dead in our sins, in the flesh. He raises us up and creates a whole new being. God raises the dead and calls into being that which did not exist before, a new creation. That's what he joined himself to. So, Holy and blameless and one with him, seated with him in the heavenly places, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, so to speak. He our head, we his body, he the vine, we the branch. All those things come to play. We see, oh my gosh, this is awesome. So it's crucial that the believer realize that when you sin now as a believer, as Clark said, I like the way Clark says it, it doesn't stick or it doesn't, it's not counted against you and I. When you and I sin as a believer, it's not even, it's not even um, considered. God says, I remember your sin no more. That doesn't mean just your past. He goes, I, I will not keep a record of your sin anymore. That's why when you saw Jesus modeling for us what, what it was like to walk with God on earth, with his disciples, you saw his disciples sinning all around him. I mean, if you wanted to name all the sins that they were committing, sins of pride and argument, uh, wanting to rain fire down on Samaria, uh, um, all kind of things. All kind of, I mean, 
to think that the, those disciples didn't sin the whole time they had fellowship with Jesus is just ridiculous. I mean, they're just a, a motley crew of, of guys that were like not understanding exactly what's going on, but they know this is big. They were just themselves. And they were around him, and yes, they were not perfect at all, not even close. And yet, he never broke fellowship with them. There's not a single example in the Gospels where Jesus broke fellowship with them because of their sin. Not a single one. Not a single one. In fact, when they ran from him after sinning big time, and they forsook him at the cross, didn't stand by him, denied him three times, Peter did, when they sinned big time, he came looking for them. Walking through the walls, wanting something to eat, to have fellowship with them. You know, this thing about the believer having sin counted against them, the believer that, that is, and you having to go through some ritual of naming that sin in order to get that somehow off your record so that God can be back in fellowship with you, it's bogus. It's the emperor has no clothes syndrome. It's bogus. Um, Deep in your heart of hearts, you know it's bogus. The spirit will teach the truth. You know it's bogus. First of all, it's not workable. It's it's not even workable. I mean, what sin are you talking about? All sin or just the big sins? It's got to be all sin. I mean, Paul says if you want to keep a little bit of the law, you've got to keep all the law. If you want to play by those rules, you have to name your sins to stay cleansed and stay in fellowship with God. You, don't have, you can't just pick the big sins. I mean, you have to. So what is sin? Sin is anything short of the perfection of God. That's what sin means. Miss the mark. You know, in archery, they have the term sin. You know, sin, you know, sin two degrees, whatever. They missed the mark. They missed the bullseye. So sin is anything short of the perfection of God in your thinking in your words or your deeds. So if you want to play by that game, which is, which is a false teaching that you have to name your sins every time you commit a sin, every time you act, every time you think or speak or act short of the perfection of God, what a trap that is because you're constantly focused on yourself, constantly asking for forgiveness, constantly seeing how short you fall, constantly wondering if I'm I'm in fellowship or not, constantly, and it wears on you to the point where he's so disappointed in me, I'm sure God's not going to answer my prayers. It works in us, this whole idea that I'm just a loser, I'm just like, I can't do anything right, you know, and that's what the enemy wants to do. But when you see the truth, that when we blow it, he's not going anywhere. There's no breaking in fellowship. Because ask yourself, what's the, what's the basis of your fellowship with Jesus anyway? Is it your obedience? Or is it his blood? See? The basis of our fellowship with him is his blood, his death. Our faith in him, our faith in what he did, is why we have fellowship in the first place. It's like Paul said, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? I mean, you can say the same thing with this. Having, gotten, having received fellowship with God because of his blood, because of his work that removed all barriers that he might join himself to you and have fellowship with you, are you now going to maintain that fellowship because of perfect obedience? Having begun in the spirit, are you going to complete this by working in the flesh to do things to, to make him happy so he won't break fellowship with you? No. And of course, the, legal, the legalist... They 
immediately all uh, run to this thinking that, well, you can't r- let people off like that. You know, you can't, they, you know, they'll just go sin like crazy. They'll just, you got to keep them accountable. You got to keep them, you got to keep them fearful of, of God not having fellowship with them. You got to keep them, uh, you know, acknowledging their sin because if they don't acknowledge it, they'll just keep doing it. I mean, you got to, no, that's, that's men's way of looking at things. That's natural men's way of looking at things. The secret to God's way is that when you see this incredible grace, this incredible union that has come, then the Holy Spirit can work within us to manifest the life of Christ. And it's not flesh doing it, and no flesh can glory in his presence because of it, because it's clearly, wow, this is all God. He's awesome. It's just God doing this. That's the way it's supposed to work. Okay, so let me look at this real quick. First John. Oh, wrong Bible. First John one nine. And what's really weird about this, saints, is that it's it's this is one single verse that has that is the source of this teaching. One single verse in all the Bible. I mean, you, you can kind of twist a few other verses here and there and try to back this 1 John 1, 9 up, this 1 John 1, 9 teaching up that is wrong, but it's, it's not even really there. This is the only verse that has, uh, that where this teaching comes from. And when you read articles about, you know, confession of sin or, or uh, this whole issue with believers, they will cite this verse like 50 times in the article because it's the only verse... That's there. Um, there's a couple of Old Testament verses, but that's Old Testament. That's before the sacrifice was given. Um, they'll quote Psalm 51. Psalm 51 talks about, you know, um, forgive my sin, cleanse me, uh, creating me a, a new, um, thanks, bud, uh, create, creating me a new heart, uh, blot out my transgression, Psalm 51. Well, that was, that was David yearning for, for what you and I now have in Christ. Psalm 51 is David yearning, creating me a new heart. I won't uh, blot out my transgressions. He even says in that Psalm 51, the, bu- the blood of bulls and goats you, you have no pleasure in. See, he's talking under an old covenant of covering of sin. And he's saying, I yearn for something better than this, God. Creating me a new heart, a willing spirit. Um, blot out my transgressions forever. I don't have to keep doing this. And because under the old covenant, there was a remembrance of sin year by year. But under the new covenant, there's not a remembrance of sin. There's a remembrance of him. Remember me, he said. See? So Psalm 51 is not applicable to you and I, except for a prophetic word of all the awesome good things you have now in Christ. So you go back to 1 John 1, 9 again. That's it. That's the only verse. Let's take a look at this. 1 John 1, 9. And how many times have we been told, never build your doctrine on one verse? And yet, here it is. Okay, 1 John 1, 9. And a lot more can be said about this, but I'm going to hit some just high points here. But um, it's amazing how people don't read the context. First of all, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. That is the verse that men teach is the bar of soap for the Christian. That's the bar of soap. I've heard it said it's the bar of soap. Um, One of the brothers in this comment on the website says it is the remedy. John gives us the remedy, he says. John gives us the remedy for sin in the believer's life. Okay. What they don't 
C is verse 8 above it and verse 10 below it. I mean, it's, it's the context. What John is saying here, look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, or the word there in the Hebrew, I mean, in the Greek is agree, if we agree with God, confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Hold your finger right there and look at 1 John chapter 5 at the end of the letter real quick. Notice he he says that we make God a liar if we say we have not sinned. Look at 1 John chapter 5. And let's see what verse, verse 10. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. This is as clear as you can get it. Verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. This is 1 John 5, verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. Okay, same writer, same letter. John is calling somebody a liar. He's not calling a believer a liar. He's calling an unbeliever a liar. He's calling someone in verse 8 and verse 10, around verse 9, he's describing a person. He's saying a person who's deceived. That's verse 8. He has not the truth in him. That's verse 8. He is calling God a liar. That's verse 10. And he has not the word in him, verse 10. He's describing simply an unregenerated person, an unbeliever who's calling God a liar. Why is he calling God a liar? Because God says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, but if, this, if, the, if you say, I have no sin or I have not sinned, which is what the Gnostics were saying, and John was addressing the Gnostics in a, in a large way in this letter, the Gnostics were saying, we have no sin. We have no need of a Savior. We know God. We have this special revelation, this mystery revelation that we can, we can rise from level, level to level, from angels to, you know. They had this system of getting close to God through this mysterious way, but they would not admit they were a sinner and, and needed a Savior. So all this is saying here, saints, this is just a good salvation verse, if you want to say it that way. It's just a good verse that says, look, if you just agree with God, like we all did, that we, are, that we have sinned and we have sinned, God is just and faithful. Why just? Just because, I mean, why, why does God have to be just to forgive me? Because he's already judged his son. And if you put your faith in his son, he would be unjust to put you in double jeopardy because he's already judged you. It would be unjust to hold your sin against you. That's what that word means. As Paul says, he is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Wow, what a paradox. He is, the, he is just and yet the justifier of the ungodly? How can you be just and justify the ungodly by judging the godly, the son? And that's what he did. And he would be unjust not to forgive you if you put your trust, your trust in his son, and his son's death, he'd be unjust. And that's why John says he is just. Just believe. Just recognize your need for a Savior. God is just, and he's faithful. In other words, he's not only just in 
removing your sin because you have your trust in Christ. But he's also faithful to do it. You can trust him to do it. He's going to do it. He's a faithful and merciful high priest. And then it says, this one who is just and faithful will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. See, that's a statement not for a, a believer to have a bar of soap. How many, how many times does God cleanse from all unrighteousness? Once. That's right. How many times do you get baptized? Once. Because that's a picture of the cleansing. That's a picture of the one death of Christ. That's when you died with him, that's when it was cleansed. How is sin cleansed? It's cleansed by death. Only the blood can take away sin. Only death, the death of another. So when you put your faith in Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't happen over and over again. If it did, we wouldn't have anything different from the old covenant. And if it did, we couldn't have him inside of us. There's no way God could be inside of you if sin is being counted against you. What is being counted for you is his own righteousness. And you can't have both of those things. That's what's so cool about this. I mean, this is, this is a heavenly logic to it because you can't have your sin being counted against you and his righteousness being counted for you at the same time. It's impossible. You have one or the other. you either in the flesh and in your sin or in the spirit and in his righteousness. It's awesome. And we need this. This is the anchor that goes beyond the veil. When we are blowing it, when we're learning how to walk by him and we're messing up in the flesh, trips us up or whatever, we need this anchor this revelation of union, this, this revelation that sin is not, is not counted against me anymore, it doesn't make you want to sin more. Contrary to religious thinking, it makes you want to run to him more. It makes you not afraid of him. That's why he said over and over again, don't be afraid, Peter. Don't be afraid. Come to me. Just don't be afraid. Come, come. Because it's not about us being good enough. It's about him who is the only good one. That's why they, when he, they call Jesus good, he says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. So unless you recognize that I'm God, then you see, there's only one good. And we have been made good because of him. It's so cool, so awesome. Okay, so do you see that? Isn't that cool how in chapter 5 he says, those who do not believe on God have made him a liar. And that's the same phrase that this writer, this writer puts in this letter. I mean, that's, the, that's, that's reading the context. That's reading and seeing what he's really saying here. Now, what happens when a believer does sin? Is there, does John address that? Yes, he does, right? After that, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, and, and again, men put chapters in here, so it just flows. You know, you go from this thought to the next thought. And then he says, my little children, he's talking to the believers now, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And or but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Not us. We're not the righteous one. He's the righteous one, but he's made us righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He died for everybody, contrary to Reformed theology, contrary to the limited atonement teaching that's out there. There's no limit to this atonement. He died not for our sins only, not just the believer's sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Awesome. So here he is saying, John is simply saying here that 
if, you, if a believer sins, just know the reality. Remember, just remember the reality that we've, we have an advocate. We have one who took our place. He doesn't even say do anything because there's nothing to do. It's just to remember. He himself, John says, has become the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation means a, a um, sacrifice that removes not only the guilt, but it means it removes the anger. I love that word, propitiation. It means it's a complete satisfaction of not just the debt. In other words, it's not just the debt forgiven and God's like, all right, you're forgiven. But I'm, you better, I'm really just disgusted with you. Yeah. No. God says, you're not only forgiven. He's with tears in his eyes. He's saying, come. Run to me. Jump on my lap. Come. My desire is that you be where I am. My desire is to be with you and you with me. See? The propitiation. So this whole thinking about having to get cleansed over and over again is, is just a real fly in the ointment. It really is a work of Satan. It started centuries ago with the Mass when Satan put this doctrine into the church about the bread and the wine becoming the body and blood of Christ. Transubstantiation is what the Roman Catholics call it. And what it is, it's, it's this teaching that says that the, the, you know, when they do this ritual and they ring the bell, that the the, the bread and the blood actually become the body and blood of Christ. Well, if, if you're saying that, then you're actually offering up the body and blood of Christ again and again and again. And that's exactly what Satan wanted people to think. And that's why the word mass means sacrifice. It means sacrifice. So they basically had this idea through the, through the enemy communicating to the masses that you, ha- you have to keep coming to mass because the sacrifice is only given here. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. It's the biggest trick of the enemy. And so you have people that, you talk about how you're forgiven. They're, they're so indoctrinated in, the, in this Roman Catholicism. But the Protestants aren't much better. Not much better. The Protestants didn't break clear of, of this thinking. When they have the bread and wine, they, they boast in saying, we don't believe that actually becomes the bread and blood. This is a memorial. This is a remembrance. We don't believe in that Roman Catholicism stuff. Um, this is a, a remembrance of what Jesus did. And then they'll, in the same breath, they'll say, now I want everybody to kneel down and turn on the pew, sit on the pew, kneel down, and let's confess all our sins before we take the bread and the wine. Because Paul says, examine yourself before you take the bread and the wine. Lest you drink it unworthily. No. Paul said the Corinthian church was, was giving the, the bread and wine to unbelievers. Unbelievers were taking the covenant meal. And Paul said, you're not discerning the body. You're, not, you're giving the, the covenant meal to unbelievers that are coming in for this agape feast to get the food, and you're not discerning who is in the body, who's not in the body. Tell everybody to examine themselves. Know they not. Christ is in them. Otherwise, they are unregenerated. That's Paul's words. Know you not. Christ is in you. He says, examine yourself. Know you not. Christ is in you. If he's not in you, you're still unregenerated. You're still not born again. So you can drink the blood, the cup, and eat the bread unworthily if as an unbeliever who has not believed on him, you drink judgment to yourself because he died for your sins. You actually announce to yourself, I deserve judgment. And the only way that 
bread and wine becomes life to you and not judgment is if you believe and receive that sacrifice, then that bread and that blood becomes, that wine becomes life to you because you believe. You see that? There's never a teaching to examine yourself for sin. The apostles never taught the believers to examine themselves for sin. Paul says, I don't even examine myself for sin. He goes, you know, that's not the issue. Paul says, examine yourself only to see if you're in the faith or not, if you're in Christ or not, are you a believer or not, are you in the new covenant or not. Once you know, because the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, then examination of the flesh ceases. Now we set our mind on things above. Now we set our mind on Jesus himself. Now we behold who we are now in him, new in him. Now we let the Spirit renew our minds to this awesome new miracle of new creation. The examination, the only examination that the apostles taught was to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. See if you believe. See if Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, then end of story. Because there's no good thing that dwells in the flesh. You can't examine it enough for it to do any good. That's why he had to crucify the flesh. That's why he judged the flesh. You can't repair the flesh. You can't fix the flesh. You can't. And that's not who you are anymore anyway. Isn't that awesome? So that's, that's the... Uh, Yes. Yeah, these these verses have really tripped up a lot of people because it seems like it's saying that you you know you believe but you also have to be obedient. If you're not obedient, then your belief is not not good. But what John is saying here, he's actually describing a true believer. You got to see this where he's saying, if you are a true believer, this will be true of you. And he's not saying walking perfectly because he just says, if any man sins, my little children, if you sin, so he's not saying that a believer walks sinless. Because right before that, he said, you know, if a believer sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So you've got to look at this as John, he, John's writing this. He, it does, because the command is just a, it's just a, um, uh, it's, the, it's the word word in the Greek. It can be translated command or word. You know, follow his words, his teachings, that kind of thing. Um, and what he's doing here, John is 90 years old writing this letter. And at 90 years old, John sees just black and white. And this letter, by the way, is not written to, sh- to show you how to be a good Christian. This letter is written to confirm the believer, to affirm the believer that you are a believer and that you have eternal life. In other words, if you don't see what John's intent here, he's, he's, everything is black and white here in this letter. We now know the spirit of truth, the spirit of error, he said. You're either in the light or you're in darkness. Notice how he says about the light and darkness. And right down from that, he says... Look at verse 8. Verse 8 of chapter 2. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. No buts about it. It's true in him and it's true in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And the one who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see? Now look back at... um, Verse 
oh, what was that verse that, that uh, to tie this together is a great verse where he says that they who walk in the, they who walk in darkness or in, in hatred have not eternal life abiding in them. I forget what verse that is, but you see how John says, oh, eleven. Yeah, but there's another one that says, he actually says, they who walk in darkness and they who hate have not eternal life abiding within them. Yeah, here it is. I'm sorry. Verse, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death and into life. This is chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see that? It's it's a contrast. You either have eternal life in you, and you will walk according to the way the Lord walked. You will manifest his fruit. Not perfectly, because he says, you know, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So he's not saying walk in sinless perfection. But if you do not have, I mean, but if you do not have eternal life in you, then you are in darkness. See, being in darkness... It's not, a, it's not a reference to obedience. This is a whole other teaching, actually. But being in darkness is not a matter of, of you doing sin or not sinning. Being in darkness is a state of being. Being in the light is a state of being. The Scripture says if we are in the light as He is in the light. As He is in the light, yes, it's a realm. He's in the light. It's not that He's obeying, see? If we are in the light as He is in the light, then the blood of Jesus... Uh, cleanses us from all sin. See, that's a reference there to a believer still sinning at times. But the, the work of Christ, the blood of Jesus, is a reference to one act of death that occurred that continually has an effect forever. So if we are in the light, as he is in the light, if we are joined to him in that realm, if we are in him, in that life, in that kingdom, in that realm, then his one act totally takes care of all our sins that we may commit as a believer. Is that making sense? I know it's, it's hard to see sometimes because people have so hammered us with these verses, but it's, it's really clear. John is saying you either have eternal life in you or you don't. And if you don't have eternal life in you, then you're in darkness. And one of the manifestations of being in darkness is that you have hate. You have hate. Now, see, and, the, and that's what believers need to really know what John is saying there because as a believer, if you get mad and you feel like you hate somebody, that doesn't mean you're in darkness. Because really, you cannot hate with your new heart. The new heart doesn't hate. And, that's why, you, and you, that's why you can tell we've, we know we pass from death into life because we love. There's a new love in us, and that's, that's God. Does that make sense? So don't, don't let these verses that seem to say, okay, God's done everything, but now you've got to obey to prove yourself. No, it's just John, as a 90-year-old man, saying, look, you Gnostics, you think you have God, you don't, because you don't recognize you need a Savior but those who do recognize they need a Savior, they will manifest the love of God because they who know God know that he is love and God is love and, you know, and that love is inside the true believer and it will manifest. But if we do sin, if we do mess up, just know we have an advocate. He's the righteous one, not us. It's that simple. It's really simple. Gosh, okay, just real quick. Repentance. One of the brothers that wrote on this, this comment thing said, he really got it. You know, I was... You can read the comment that I put there about 1 John 1, 9. He really got it. He goes, oh, my, that's awesome. So that means all my sins have been forgiven when I first believed, past, present, and future. And, uh, and uh, he was right on. That's exactly right. So then he says, so, then he said, so, the, so a believer doesn't need to repent, repent anymore. And then right away I realized he's confusing apples and oranges because he's equating confession of sin 
for daily cleansing with repentance. So I wrote a quick little comment back and I said, just a quick clarification, that repentance does not mean confession of sin for daily cleansing. That's two different things. Um, we, the confession of sin for the believer for daily cleansing is bogus and unscriptural. And a misapplication of 1 John 1, 9 that we see clearly is talking about an unbeliever that just needs to recognize he's a sinner and God will forgive him and he's just and faithful to do so. So that is bogus. But repentance is not bogus for a believer if you know what repentance is. But he was combining the two. Repentance just simply means to change your mind. Just change your mind. Religion has added so much stuff to that word repentance. That's why he said that, see? He's got in his head all this junk about the word repentance that he, that he actually included this whole process of naming your sins and getting right with God in repentance. See? That's not what repentance means. The scripture says several places that God repented. God repented. Take your definition of repentance that you think is the right definition and put it in that sentence. God repented. Hmm. God was sorry for his sin. No. God was weeping for his, for his wickedness. No. God decided to turn over a new leaf. No. You see? No. God, God just changed his mind. God just changed his mind. God repented and decided not to destroy Nineveh. He saw them repent. They saw, he saw them repent. So God repented. He did, changed his mind about not destroying Nineveh. So the, we put so much baggage on that word repentance. You realize the word repentance never even appears in the Gospel of John? Never appears, not once. The word repentance doesn't even appear in the Gospel of John. And, in, and when Paul talked about sin and struggling with sin in Romans 7, the word repentance never appears. Not even chapter 6 before it or chapter 8 after it and certainly not in chapter 7. He's talking about sinning. He's, he's saying, I'm sinning, I'm hating what I'm doing. The very thing I wa- don't want to do, I end up doing. The very thing I, I, I want to do, I don't do. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who shall... The word of repentance never is mentioned by the Apostle Paul. Why? Because if you hate what you're doing and you want to be free and you want to be more like Jesus in some area of your life that you're struggling with, you've already repented. You've already changed your mind. And people that are struggling with fleshly things and hate what they're doing, they want to get free, if they're told by a preacher to repent, it is, it is confusing and it, it puts them on a treadmill. It's like me telling Gail, Gail, sit in the chair. And she goes, I thought I was in the chair. Well, maybe I'm not in the chair, you know? No, you've already repented. You've already changed your mind. You've already changed your mind. And and really, repentance should be rare in the life of a believer. Because repentance has to do, get this, saints, repentance has to do with who Jesus is. So as we learn who Jesus is, and we want to be like him, because your new heart desires to be like him, it's made in his image, then you agree. You agree. And the mind has changed. Yes, yes, I want to be loving. I don't want to be mean. I want to be kind. I don't want to be cruel. See? So there's not a whole lot to change your mind about when you really know God. When you, as you, it's not a whole lot to... I mean, what, what, what thing do you not... What thing do you believe about God that you need to change your mind about? It might be. But it's rare. You see what I'm saying? It's not a, repentance is not this big cure-all for everything. No, it's a simple thing. Change your mind. Now, there was a case in the book of uh, the Corinthian church where, the, where Paul talks about repentance and, the, and exactly where it should be used. And this brother thought he was, he was so free in grace, he thought it was okay to, to be sleeping with his, with his uh, father's mother, the scripture says, which is probably his stepmother, we think, his stepmother. So he thought it was cool to sleep with his stepmother. Paul said, that's not cool. 
That's not cool. That's not Christ. But he thought, so he says, you need to repent of that. You need to change your mind about that because that's not Christ. And he did. And the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, confirm your love to this brother because he changed his mind. He's not, he's not thinking that way anymore. Confirm your love to this brother because we know Satan likes to pile on the guilt and make people feel guilty and so forth. You know, he changed his mind about that. He may still be struggling with desires about that, but he changed his mind about that. Now he's in Romans 7, where I'm maybe doing what I don't want to do or I hate what I'm doing, but he's, he's changed his mind. Don't keep preaching repentance to that brother. Don't, don't ostracize that brother. He did change his mind. You see what I'm saying? And that's a rare case in the writings of Paul where he even talks about repentance. He doesn't even talk about it. Romans is a treatise on the Christian life. He mentions repentance once. In the, in the first chapter when he talks about uh, it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. You know, it's not, it's not this religious thing that people have, have said. So yes, repentance may be um, applicable for a believer from time to time if we need to change our mind. I mean, if you still think you can go into 7-Eleven and rob 7-Eleven, you need to repent. <laughs> if, you, if you think that, I think it's cool. I, I, you know, Jesus wouldn't mind if I go in and rob 7-Eleven. No, he wouldn't mind. You need to repent of that. Change your mind about that. But see, how much stuff you really have to change your mind about God? I mean, really, think about it. Is there anything that you really need to change your mind about God? You know him. You know what love is. You know him. You may not always act perfectly. We don't act perfectly. We don't manifest perfectly what we know about God. But we believe and we, have, we don't need to have our minds changed about it. What we need is to have our minds renewed to the reality of who Christ is in us. See, that's why Romans 8 is all about the renewal of the mind. It's not about repentance. Does that make sense? I tell you, this gospel is simple, but it's profound. And it will set us free from a self-consciousness, sin consciousness, to where the Spirit can open our hearts to the, the, the horizons that are in front of you in Christ. I mean, he's, this, our King, our King suffered died and was raised again for an amazing thing. And religious people are still talking about sin and still keeping you sin conscious. But the Spirit of God, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of, God, mind of man what God has done. But the Spirit has been given that we might know these things that are freely given to us in Christ. You can soar, saints. You can soar as an eagle and be who you really were called to be. Lose the sin consciousness. For the worshipers, once been cleansed, should have no more consciousness of sin. Hebrews 10. Lose the sin consciousness and have a Christ consciousness. Let the Holy Spirit take you to your destiny. You've been created new in Him unto good works, but afterwards you should merely walk in them. They're already inside of you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's what honors our king. Lord, thank you so much. Help us to see these things and teach others the awesomeness of your grace and your work. In Jesus' name, amen.